0: Colleagues, Anthony McKay, President and CEO, the National Center on Education and the Economy, welcoming you to Global Ed Talks. And today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Professor James Pellegrino. Jim, welcome.
1: Thank you, Tony. Happy to be here.
0: Well, it's great to have you here. And I will not delay uh, with a lengthy introduction, but I do want Uh, people to understand, as many do, that you bring multiple disciplines to bear on what we have affectionately called in this global ed talk, uh, how people learn, but it goes much further than that. Um, You are known, obviously, uh, as a learning scientist. Uh, You're a distinguished professor. Uh, You have made huge contributions to the field from multiple perspectives, but of course, uh celebrated two volumes now of how people learn but of course your work goes into the territory of policy practice supported by deep research and not only is that a feature of your work here in the us but uh in collaborations globally so to have you uh in a situation where right now the debate around education is focusing so closely on those areas of your expertise where you've got the opportunity to continue to research, to write and to advise, uh, particularly in the areas of curriculum, of instruction, of assessment. This is a great chance for us just to capture the state of the art. So Jim, again, thank you for joining us. And let me let me kick off with a broad question here. Mm-hmm. Uh, two volumes of how people learn. Uh, hugely influential uh, internationally and, of course, course within the U.S., where you've contributed to so many of the discussions and dialogues as members of the the academy and boards and government advisory committees. Do you feel like with the second volume, and please go back to the first, (laughs) but do you feel like with the second volume, we now have captured the essence of how people learn that can seriously inform the way in which we think about learning and how we can ensure all young people can become powerful learners?
1: It's a great question. And I I guess I would sort of say that um, if I look at the uh, almost uh, 20 years intervening between the two volumes. So the first volume, How People Learn, uh, Brain, Mind, Culture, and and School was published in 2000. And the most recent one, which was How People Learn to Culture and Context, was published in 2018. So, the way I would look at that, I sort of say between the first volume, which was really a synthesis of everything we had learned up to that point about the late nature of knowing and learning, including disciplinary subject matter learning, and then the second volume, which built from that, but then really expanded our perspective on how we currently think about the nature of learning. It moved us to a much more contextually driven sociocultural view of learning, recognizing that learning is not a singular thing. It is an act that we do in concert with others. We develop an understanding of particular cultural practices. Some of those cultural practices are associated with disciplinary subjects like mathematics or science or history. Some of that learning is associated with cultural practices. And context out of school, how to be members of certain communities, how certain groups act. So we have a much richer conception <clears throat> of the nature of what it means to learn and how that learning develops in a socio-cultural context, which is which can over time be changing in itself. So what we want students to learn now may be different than what it was 20 years ago because. Our cultures change, the culture of what we expect in mathematics. So that's an important part. The other thing that has changed is the application of that kind of framing to what does it mean to know and to learn in certain fields of academic endeavor or other endeavors. So we have much more, a much deeper understanding of trajectories of learning in mathematics in science and what makes them productive? What leads to the kinds of knowledge and expertise and competence we want students to have by at certain points along their trajectory of learning as we're thinking about them being citizens as entering professions? So, so yes, I would sort of say we have learned a great deal. There's a lot more we need to know, but we have a very good way to approach uh, developing that knowledge base through research because we have a very rich, powerful, theoretical orientation that can guide us.
0: And and Jim, do you feel that you are seeing uh, traction with this in the practices of the profession, in the way in which policymakers and formulators are informed about the enabling conditions for teaching and learning what's your assessment of the progress we're making about the application of this knowledge?
1: Um, I I would sort of say it's mixed and here's how I see it mixed. I I see part of the progress that we've made in the application of that knowledge in the the context or the example of particular sets of frameworks and standards that have been developed which have begun to identify what are the targets of learning, for example, the, the the standards in mathematics or in uh, or in uh, literacy or in science and and international standards. Those embody much more this idea of it's not just about content knowledge. It's about what I would call disciplinary practices. Being able to do something with the knowledge, knowledge in use. Now that has been slower to find its way into actual practice with respect to how teachers now approach the the instructional, the learning environment. But it is beginning to move into that direction um, through various professional development. It is a transformation of what does the classroom look like? If we want students to develop these competencies, we have to focus much more on the classroom environment, the discourse structures, how we support students in engaging in in deep thinking and argumentation of a positive type about evidence and and things like that. So I see that happening in, in the classroom because the standards in some ways are reflecting that and now people are coming to understand what does that mean or imply for student learning and the conditions of instruction. With respect to administration, I think it still has a way to get up to those levels because they're they're not as close to that classroom environment. On the other hand, I think it's penetrating those levels because the argument is being made, we we need students to develop uh, sort of the competencies we want for the 21st century. We we talk about deeper learning and capacities for transfer. So it's, it's a demand there, whether they fully understand what it takes to get there I think remains to be seen.
0: Yeah. So this point about the shift in the discourse, there's there's clearly a shift in the discourse about the importance of applied learning. But as you point out, there's also the conversation we're having globally that you've just referenced namely about competencies. Mm -hmm. And then you immediately connected that to the question about deeper learning. So say a word about how you are seeing the international conversation, the domestic conversation that we are now having around uh, what people learn <laughs> and the competency argument, then the how people learn that, that ensures that, in fact, we do go deeper, that we have learners who are going to be more powerful as a result of their learning experience. So if I try to capture that... The deep, the deep learning debate.
1: Yeah. Well, it's an interesting one. Sometimes I talk to some of my colleagues, they say deeper than what? Uh, So what are we doing? Are we doing shallow learning, deep learning or deeper than shallow? But, but, you know, the, the term uh, can be bandied about in different ways. But when we, when we, uh, when we wrote a report for the National Research Council on, uh, called Education for Life and Work, Developing Transferable Knowledge in the 21st Century. One of the things we were supposed to do was to help define what is deeper learning. And, and so we said that deeper learning is really a process, not a product. It is the process by which you engage in, uh, in, in a discipline that produces what I would call knowledge that represents the key understandings and principles in that discipline that allows you to now do something with that knowledge, which yep. then is the basis for transfer. Um, so it's not just building up a body of knowledge, it is building up knowledge that is tuned to the circumstances of use that was that and, and is tuned to the principles that are related to that field, how we do things, what are the important ideas, how do we apply them? That That's the kind of goal, So we so deeper learning is the process of developing that kind of competence. And it is enabled by the conditions under which we engage in those practices. What's happening in the classroom? What's the content? What are we asking students to do that helps them develop that that kind of competency? And and I think that's very important because it, it means that when we then talk about labels that have been bandied about like 21st century competencies like problem solving yeah. critical thinking it's collaboration while we can talk about them as generic they really only have meaning when they are talked about in the context of that deeper knowledge i mean i often joke it's like well critical thinking about what you have to know something to think critically about it um problem solving is really Effective problem solving is rooted in deep disciplinary knowledge. Um, Because if you don't have that knowledge, you do what most of us do when we don't know something in the domain. We do what's called weak methods problem solving, general problem solving. It's not to demean those things, but the kind of competencies we want that will endure and promote transfer and readiness for a very rapidly changing world is that kind of deep, deep knowledge, deep knowledge of you know what, what, how to think mathematically, how to reason mathematically, how to reason scientifically, how to reason uh, historically, so we can interpret new things as they come along, because things are gonna change.
0: So Jim, yeah, so therefore, as you have said, the importance of how you design the learning environment to make how you think about instruction in order mm-hmm to ensure that this knowledge is accessible, that it recognises what the learner is bringing in Mm -hmm. terms of prior knowledge. So it recognises the context. So it recognises, as you say, the Mm socio-cultural conditions here. How do you now think about the learning environment to ensure that we have got the engagement of young people (laughs) and they see the relevance and they are embracing enthusiastically and motivated, coming from so many different backgrounds. Because one of the big issues here, of course, is there are some who are winning at this game. Mm-hmm. There are many who are losing. That was always the case with the old game. Mm-hmm. It's certainly the case, actually, potentially with the new game.
1: Well, well, first of all, we have to recognize that in this learning environment, you know, and whether it's, in, whether it's formal schooling or informal learning environments, um, individuals come to that environment um, with their own existing knowledge and beliefs, um, and the uh, and what we've done is oftentimes we've set up school as something different than the rest of the world, rather than essentially what happens in school or a formal learning environment as somehow connected to what kids already know. So we can we can bring that they can bring that to bear and serve as a bridge. To the kinds of uh, knowledge we want them to develop, which is broader than that, but that doesn't denigrate what they're bringing. So, so, so that's one of the ways to capture their interest and in motivation. The problems should be interesting um, to the students, should be relevant to them, um, so that we can engage them. Because without motivation, we can't get we can't get that learning. A sociocultural theory very much encompasses ideas of motivation. Um, so, so we, we, and then, you know, we have to recognize that, that we have to engage individuals in this process of, of dialogue and discourse, what I call, and we, you know, we talk about a lot about argument, but we're talking about argument, not screaming argument, but argument, which is essentially making points and then trying to develop, um, you know, why, why do I think that way? What's my evidence? And using that as a basis for developing an under, a common understanding rather than just sort of an imposed understanding where instruction is just really, I'm just gonna deliver to you the knowledge, you absorb it, you do something with it as opposed to you're going to actually identify with that. So, so there's a key idea in, in terms of engaging students is, is to help them develop an, an identity as a mathematical yeah. thinker, as a scientific yeah. thinker. So it becomes one of their identities with all their other identities.
0: Yep, understood. So let me take you to this. You you often talk about the triangle of uh, curriculum instruction and assessment. And uh, you, of course, argue that these need to be in alignment, not mm-hmm. fighting each other. So you, let me ask you this about assessment. If it's true that <laughs> Uh, we know now much more about how people learn. We come to an understanding or an agreement, a settlement about what we want all young people to know and be able to do. We're far more sophisticated in the design of our learning environments and our pedagogical practices. Then you want, as you've said, assessment aligned to that. It Mm -hmm. serves those objectives. So Mm -hmm. the latest paper that you've been part author, uh, or at least a contributing significant author to... uh, release of the National Academy of Education that I mentioned, educational assessments in the COVID-19 era and beyond.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Are we at a point where the assessment practices uh, are able to support in a very powerful way what we see as being most important to learn, That deep learning, new metrics of success, right? Can we have assessments that do that? Because the argument has been that particularly high-stakes assessments can either distort or narrow what ultimately then becomes the experience curriculum, what becomes mm-hmm. the learning environment that young people experience. So tell me, latest <laughs> report. This has been a lifetime, but are we getting there?
1: Uh, there's a lot packed up in that question, Tony. Uh, but I, I'll say this. One, as as our as our, our as our understandings have developed about um, essentially, what it means to know and in and, and fields and the sociocultural framing. It obviously has given us new targets for learning. It's given us new ways to think about the environment that will promote that. It's also given us new ways to think about, okay, what should we be assessing? What are we looking for? If we think about assessment as a process of reasoning from evidence, then it's, it's really about what's the evidence that's going to convince us that students have developed this knowledge and skills. So we have have advanced greatly in terms of our capacity to do rigorous assessment design following an evidence-centered design logic. We can implement that in various levels from the classroom on up. But the issue that you're bringing up is that the large-scale assessment, which has dominated things, at least in the United States, creates an out of balance system such that uh, all of the emphasis is placed on what those tests reveal relative to other forms of evidence that might come from the classroom or the district. So one issue is we got to put the system in balance. Another is we have to recognize the inherent limitations of those large scale assessments because any assessment is designed under constraint how much time, how much evidence, how, what are we trying to cover? So the point is we can build better large scale assessments, but they are always going to be limited relative to the kinds of assessments that we need down at the level of where the rubber meets the road, where teaching right. and learning is going on. And, we just, and what we have to do is work at the policy community as well as the investment to put those things in balance. The COVID-19 situation has caused us to rethink a little bit. What are we doing with assessment? do, Do we really need these large scale assessments? And for what? What is the information we really need? Who needs it? And then how do we put these things back into some proper perspective? So I think there's a space there now for rethinking this. It's kind of like, it's sad that it took a pandemic to get us to yes. sort of begin to rethink or think about rebalancing the equation here, um, and and maybe that's a good thing because there's a lot more that we know how to how to do high quality assessment that's valid for different purposes. But we have to we have to make that investment. We have to make that shift because most of the money goes to the large scale assessments.
0: Well, Jim, let me um let me finish with a question that uh, probably. Moves just slightly outside of the distinguished professor, researcher, author, uh, policy advisor, mm-hmm. but not too far out, because I want to pick up on your last point. Uh, there's a moment, there's an international discussion now that's growing in intensity about the future of assessment. And of course, it's a future of assessment that serves, as you point out, the broader agenda around the future of learning mm-hmm. and the future of work. We at NCE, as you well know, um, are moving on a paper that we want to position as a contribution to that discussion in the same way as the Academy's paper does that. Mm -hmm. Now, this is where I'm asking you to move a little beyond uh, education into the politics of education. So, final comment. Do you reckon that internationally, but particularly within the US at the moment, there is the opportunity to seriously advance this discussion? that there's an urgency, as you point out, around what's emerged in terms of a new economy, around equity issues, that learning must become far more powerful in order to have educated citizens, and quite frankly, um, a a prosperous economy and society. I know I'm loading a lot in here, but it is the politics of education, right? So finally, what's your sense? Are we in a moment where we think we can seriously push this agenda.
1: I would say I think I think that's the case because if if uh, and and here's my here's my logic. I think what what the the pandemic has caused us to understand much more greatly than we did before. We always knew it, but it has to do with the gross inequities we have with respect to education. Um, and it's not just inequities in terms of scores on tests. It, it's inequities in everything associated with the conditions that are going to allow all of our children to, to develop in the ways we want, so that we we recognize the potential of all human capital, and that is the environments they need to thrive in, in order for us to attain the goals that we have for our planet, for our citizens, et cetera. So it's, I think we have, we have really become much more cognizant of the inequities. That opens the space for sort of having a discussion. Don't just use assessments to sort of show we have these gaps. What can assessment do for us yes. that will help us eliminate these gaps? What is the productive use of that information to attend to the needs of the students so that we don't just keep tracking the inequi- the consequences of those inequities? We actually use it to reduce some of those inequities in terms of the learning environments that those students experience.
0: Professor James Pellegrino, Jim, thank you.
1: My pleasure, Tony. Always nice chatting with you.